The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And yes, it does. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Two market gurus sounding the alarm on one market metric. We'll take a look at what it is and if they're right about it. The competition is growing and Netflix starting to feel the pressure. What to expect in tonight's earnings and if Netflix should give in and finally embrace the ad model. Plus, a piping hot stock, luxury losing some of its luster, and Boeing needs more cash. That is all ahead. But we begin with today's markets. Seema Modi here with the numbers. Seema. Hey, Brian. Well, I would point out is that we're already off the lows of the session. We were down about 112 at the lows, currently down 27 for the Dow. Take a look at the Nasdaq. We're actually back in positive territory at 93.89. Now, of course, the sector in high focus at this hour, travel and leisure, those concerns around the coronavirus in China spreading to other Asian countries and the possible impact that could have on tourism, bookings, especially after China this morning said that the virus can be spread through human contact. Now, of the three cruise lines, uh, SunTrust analysts say that Royal Caribbean has the most exposure to China with its customized sailings. That stock currently down over 3%. Travel-related names in China also under pressure as millions of people in China prepare to travel either home or across Asia to celebrate the Chinese New Year. Air China down 3%. Sea uh, Chip down nearly 10%. Guys, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. Well, the Federal Reserve is getting drawn into a battle between those who want more rate cuts, if they're even possible, and those who want the central bank to save its ammo for a rainy day. Here's what the president's top economic advisor and a legendary hedge fund manager both said at the World Economic Forum in Davos today. I'm looking for faster growth. I think we're going to get three this year. Uh, The trade deals will help the Fed change policy. That was very, very important. If you get a downturn, and and there's a a good probability in the next term you'll get a downturn and you don't have effective monetary policy and you have people at each other's throats all right let's talk more now about this along with the political wild cards that are dangling out there right now with dan clifton head of policy research at strategus research partners so what do you think dan are you on the side that the fed has simply shot the arrows out of its quiver and if that sort of dragon of a slowdown comes out it's going to be helpless and we're going to be helpless well, I look at it a little bit differently, Brian. I, I look at it as the fact that the trade war tightened financial conditions that forced the Fed to have to act in 2019. They cut rates three times. They raised their balance sheet by $400 billion. By doing that, did they take away some of their arrows in the quiver? Absolutely. But what we see is that monetary policy has about a six to nine month lag. I think the Fed expects that maximum hit to really hit right around the second quarter of 2020. And if my good friend Larry Kudlow is right, you should see growth accelerate. The trade deals have reduced some of that uncertainty. And then eventually the Fed can get back to normalization sometime in 2021. But I really don't believe the Fed is going to have to act decisively further to the downside, meaning more interest rate cuts. And so they should be on hold this year and growth should accelerate. And that should give them a little bit of time to build up some resources for that downturn. The the Fed sounds and clearly seems like it's frustrated, Dan. I mean, it's got that foot on the gas pedal. It's like driving my old Jeep. 
No matter how hard I hit the gas pedal, it's not going to go more than 67 miles an hour. That's pretty much it. And we're not getting the inflation run rate. And do you, do you think this time, this brick on the gas pedal will finally deliver a little bit of that inflation that the Federal Reserve has been looking for? Well, I think there's two factors here that are important. The first is we did this big tax cut. We started to see growth accelerate. The tariff slowed that growth down and it slowed inflation down. What we have seen since the U.S. and China announced their truce or their phase one deal in early October is you've seen the dollar weakening, especially relative to the Chinese currency. By that extension, you should get higher prices, higher food, higher energy prices. Now, I know you're an expert in the energy space and the inability for prices to go higher, but we should see faster economic growth. We should see yields go higher. And, and again, I don't think monetary policy should be the tool for where we get economic growth from. It was needed while we had that face off with China. Now that that's been pushed to the side, I think you're going to see a bit normalization happening in 2020. Well, whatever normalization means now, that's by the correct. way, Dan. But I want to switch yeah. gears. Let's talk about some yep. political wild cards. Absolutely. Obviously, it's day one of the impeachment trial beginning in the Senate. It's probably going to stretch on for a long time. Depending on what radio station you listen to, it's either everything or nothing. How does the market view it? That's right. Well, the markets have been going higher because earnings and interest rates and everything else is, seems very positive. And the question is, what can happen in election year that can lead to a pullback after a pretty big run up itself? I would argue on impeachment, if new information comes out uh, that could start to delay the impeachment trial or start to make it look like the president's going to be convicted, that would be one issue. But I think the betting odds this morning are around a 10 percent probability of the president being convicted in the Senate with 67 votes. Well, what happens? If, listen, 10 percent's not nothing. What That's stranger correct. things have occurred? That's correct. what happens if, though, it's highly unlikely, according to you and pretty much everybody else we've talked to. Yep. The president gets impeached and removed. What happens? Well, it's uncharted territory because we've never impeached a president right before an election. And there is sort of a pence put here, but it would be the uncertainty around the president going away. And I will tell you that most of our clients believe that Donald Trump is going to get reelected. We had a, a conference here in Washington last week and about 75 percent of our clients expected those are institutional investors expected Trump to be reelected. So it would be an abrupt change in expectations. It would raise the probability of a Democrat winning. And by the way, I don't think Democrats per se are bad for markets, but the market is worried about tax increases if a Democrat gets elected. Joe Biden, who has the least, uh, I would say, aggressive tax plan, is about $4 trillion over 10 years. And so the market will have to grapple with the possibility yep. of the after-tax rate of return on equities going lower in that instance. And it would lead to a market sell-off, at least temporarily. All right, Dan Clifford, Strategist. Good stuff, Dan. Have a feeling we'll be Thank seeing you. more of each other in the coming weeks and months. Thank you. That's right. Thank you. All right, now to that other big story that we just referenced from Capitol Hill. The Senate impeachment trial of President Trump is about to get underway. Lon Moy is live on Capitol Hill with more on what should be a long and contentious first day of many. Elan. That's right, Brian. Senators are preparing for a historic day here on Capitol Hill as they convene as jurors in the third impeachment trial of a president. 
the Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, John Roberts, will be presiding. It'll start with the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms reading a proclamation reminding senators that they have to remain silent during the trial on pain of imprisonment. Now, we are expecting this trial to begin with a vote on the rules that will govern the trial over the next two weeks or so. That will get two hours of debate, and then the top Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, will offer a series of amendments that will also get an additional two hours of debate for each amendment. He's going to start with an amendment that would request the Senate to subpoena any White House documents related to the president's phone call with the Ukrainian president. He'll also offer amendments on calling additional witnesses, on admitting evidence, and also on rewriting the rules to more closely resemble those during the Clinton impeachment trial. Now, do remember, Brian, that it is not going to be the senators who will be doing the debating. That will be handled by the Democratic House managers and the White House's defense team. And this will be the first time that we have seen those two sides square off against each other. So that interaction should set the tone for what this trial looks like in the next few days and weeks. Back over to you. Yeah, we should. Should be a long couple of things. Quick question, Ilan. Do we have any idea what the shortest or longest version of this trial might look like? The shortest this trial could wrap up, I believe, would be the middle of next week. That would be in a very aggressive time frame. Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that he wants to move quickly through this phase one of the impeachment trial. But uh, any number of things could delay that timeline. It is more likely to last at least through the end of next week. And certainly, if witnesses are called, that would take even longer. All right, Elon Moy in D.C. Elon, thank you very much. All right, the Dow down fractionally right now, but we got a lot more ahead. Here's what's up on the exchange. Coming up, two major market heavyweights have a warning for investors. We'll tell you what it is and debate if they're right. Plus, a six-week winning streak, a 27% rally this month, and hovering near all-time highs. The name and whether you should buy this piping hot stock right now. And the streaming giant no more? We'll talk Netflix earnings after the bell. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Well, the death toll is rising from a mysterious flu-like virus that originated in China but has now spread to other countries in the region. It is eerily reminiscent of the SARS scare a few years ago. It's scary. It's been a topic in Davos with billionaire investor Paul Tudor Jones addressing the coronavirus earlier today. I would say we've got a curveball with uh, this coronavirus. I think that's a big deal. Uh, I hope not. I mean, it's, it is. A, if you if you look at what happened in 2003, it was estimates range 0.5 to 2 percent of GDP for China, uh, half percent for Southeast Asia. Stock markets sold off double digits. All right. Our Beijing bureau chief, Eunice Yun, joining us now for the very latest. All right, Eunice, what do we know about the coronavirus right now? 
Well, what we know, Brian, is that uh, this virus has confirmed cases uh, to the tune of 323 with six dead. Uh, this is a coronavirus that's similar to the SARS virus, which, if you remember, back in 2003, killed uh, nearly 800 people. Uh, the virus was traced to a seafood market in the central city of Wuhan. It could spread person to person. The authorities have confirmed that uh, with symptoms like fever, breathing difficulties, and lung lesions. Now, this new respiratory illness is mainly in mainland China, though today Taiwan confirmed its first case. Uh, New York, San Francisco, and L.A. have all joined other international airports in screening travelers from Wuhan, and Wuhan itself has taken some uh, new measures in order to try to get a control get control of the situation, and that would include banning tour groups out of Wuhan and also, Brian, uh, something that's really big for the city, and that is canceling all of its Lunar New Year celebrations, which um, from a Chinese context or, say, the U.S. equivalent would be as if the U.S. decided to cancel Christmas. So the top health authority in this country has also said that it's going to be giving a briefing, a regular one, and the first one is going to be tonight at Tuesday, 9 p.m. U.S. time. Oh, scary stuff. Eunice Yoon, thank you very much for joining us late in the evening in Beijing. Appreciate it. Well, that new coronavirus, just one area of concern addressed at Davos. Market heavyweight Stephen Schwartzman and Paul Tudor Jones sharing their views this morning. All markets have gone up pretty dramatically, um, you know, over the last few years. Uh, I guess the S&P somewhere around 19 times. Uh, and if you pay a premium to that, uh, that's pretty high. We're just, again, in the craziest monetary fiscal mix in history. Uh, it's so explosive. It's, it defies imagination, and I don't think anything's changed. It reminds me a lot of... Uh, early 99. So along with that, what else should be on the minds of all you investors out there? Right as the markets hover at record highs, let's bring in Jeff Crumpleman. He is chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors and Kevin Mon, chief investment officer at Henyon and Walsh. First, Kevin, welcome. And Jeff, thank you. Uh, To the topic of the day, do you change your investing outlook at all, given some of these scares that we are seeing in China, a la SARS, a number of years ago? Not necessarily right now. We'll see how this plays out over time. But I do believe, Brian, that 2020 will be a year marked by two distinct halves. The first half of the year, we do see more upside potential in the stock market, thanks in large part to a dovish Federal Reserve that's likely to do nothing this year outside of balance sheet adjustments, a very strong U.S. consumer, and the general state of FOMO amongst retail investors that's going to have money continuing to come into equities overall. However, as we move towards the second half and the political season really starts to ramp up, We believe there will be bouts of intermittent volatility, and as a result, diversification and an overweighting towards U.S. dividend-paying equities is beneficial. Jeff, are you worried about valuations or anything else right now? You know, certainly it's not as cheap as it was going into 2019 when PEs were 13 and a half times. But we don't think that it's uh, overly expensive right now, and we do think that, uh, you know, earnings growth will accelerate and pick up in uh, 2020. And actually, PEs at these levels are uh, not all that abnormal for low inflation, low interest rates. And if you look at the equity premium, if you look at uh, the yield on uh, earnings yield on stocks versus bonds, 
it's actually quite attractive. So we think they're fine, and they can, they can hover at these levels and benefit from the earnings growth that we, we think we'll see uh, later in the year. And certainly not 1999. I think that's a, a huge overstatement uh, when you had 27-time yeah. forward P.E., and, you know, you had on a napkin no revenues and you had valuation. So uh, it's, it's certainly not, not But I'll follow up with you, Jeff, because what's interesting when I hear that from you is that you're recommending really three natural resource plays. You're recommending the GLD, the gold ETF, Pan Am Silver, a silver mining company, and Albemarle, which is actually the largest or one of the largest lithium producers in the world. Why are you digging in the dirt here for some of these stocks? So we've made a lot of money with a blend of growth and value, and we've owned the FANG stocks, and we've owned Lululemon, and Marriott, and Visa, and all these names, and we continue to hold those positions. All we're doing is actually trimming back a little bit and taking profits on some of those names, still owning them, but trimming back and getting exposures that complement what we have, and right now in a period of uncertainty, and you're going to get that volatility that the other guest is talking about in an election year. Gold does well during periods of policy uncertainty. Pause is just a great example um, of a, a silver, the number one silver mining company in the world with great reserves and growth uh, and demand for silvers up. And then lithium is a secular play on electric cars as the largest lithium producer uh, in the world. So, you know, we're just kind of balancing out. It's that blend. Mm-hmm. You got offense, you got defense, and it's just blending out that portfolio for balance. Do, do we still, Kevin, play offense, given that we've got an election this year, from what I've told? First day of an impeachment <laughs> trial starting? Exactly. And 75% of the, the institutional investors surveyed by Strategus, you may have just heard, believe that Donald Trump is going to win. Are people too complacent right now? I still think there's growth opportunities, at least for the first half of the year, in areas such as biotech from an MA perspective, consumer discretionary, right in the strength of the U.S. consumer in the e-commerce ecosystem. And then from an income perspective, preferreds look really attractive right here. How do you, how do you invest in preferreds? So you can actually invest in the preferred securities themselves. The largest issuer of preferreds are financials. Financials, as we know, is one of the two sectors. What's the that benefit over common right stock? So you have a preferential treatment in in the event of a bankruptcy. It also pays a much higher dividend yield than common stocks. And right now, much higher than the 10-year, which is yielding about 1.8%. What's the downside of preferreds? Well, they don't have an actual defined maturity date, so, but you don't have as much volatility, uh, but you limit your upside potential with preferreds as well as opposed to common stocks. But we like preferreds and we like municipals as it relates to income. Okay. Kevin Mon, Henning and Walsh, Jeff Crumbleman, Mariner Wealth Advisors. Guy, I like it. You brought some new ideas. Preferreds, lithium, gold, Pan Am, silver. Better than Pan Am Airlines. Jeff, thank you very much. All right. On deck. Digital publishing is doing something it is not done ever since the dawn of the internet. We'll tell you what that is ahead. Plus, in need of money and told to drop the 737 MAX brand, we've got the very latest on Boeing as its crisis wears on. And as a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go from anywhere on the CNBC app, The Exchange, back in two minutes. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, 
I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. No electric slide for Tesla, China concerns, and a rare upgrade for Victoria's Secret. Here are your stocks to watch. Number one, Tesla soaring again. New Street Research surging its price target to 800 a share from 530. They think that Tesla will sell two to three million cars per year after 2025. Stock two is really two stocks. Las Vegas Sands and Wynn both lower on fears over that coronavirus. The outbreak raising concern about consumer travel and spending for the upcoming Lunar New Year. And lastly, L Brands, slightly higher. KeyBank upgraded the beaten up owner Victoria's Secret to an overweight from a sector weight. The bank says that L Brands is increasingly likely to engage in some sort of value creating transaction. All right, let's step out of the world of money and business for a moment. Get to Sue Herrera with a CNBC News update. Sue. Thanks, Brian, very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. NATO's chief, Jens Stoltenberg, says the alliance must beef up its military training operation in Iraq to ensure that its member countries are not drawn back into combat there. The issue we are looking into is not whether we can launch new combat operations. The issue is whether we can do something that prevents us from being forced into new combat. Prevention is better than intervention. Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido meeting UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab in London. Guaido is recognized as the rightful interim president of Venezuela, not only by the UK, but nearly 60 other countries, including the US. But he has so far failed to unseat President Nicolas Maduro. And sportsbooks in New Jersey are the first offering movie buffs the opportunity to bet on the Oscars, which are set for February 9th. To prepare for the star-studded night, Play USA has created a complete rundown of the Oscars at its website. Check that one out. That's the news update this hour. Brian, back to you. Have you seen the movie 1917? No, but we are going to see it this weekend. My kids really want to see that it's, movie. I, 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 I know it's, it's our movie. Fantastic. It's Universal, so I'm a total homer. It's one of the 20 best movies I've ever seen just for the cinematography. Yes. I have no idea how they filmed it. I don't want to know. It was magic. Run, don't walk. I hear it is absolutely fabulous. And the fact that my, my teenage kids want to see it, I think, is is really amazing, too. So yeah. it's got Do, great buzz. It, a little tough Tough to watch. Oh, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I won't give it away. So you're in for a treat. Suhura, thank you very much. You got it. Brian. All right, here's what else is ahead on the exchange. Coming up, less plastic but more plants. A look at Starbucks' new plan. Speaking of coffee, a look at Luckin Coffee's massive run. And if you can still get in, a scandal hits Best Buy. And Disney Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, and Amazon Prime. The list of competitors for Netflix is growing. A look at what to expect from the company tonight. That's all coming up on The Exchange. Best Buy's worst case scenario, maybe more plants at the coffee shop. And Google says tech has to face the music. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here now to break down the headlines of the day are Courtney Reagan, Robert Frank, and Seema Modi. First up, Best Buy, investigating CEO Corey Berry for alleged misconduct. In an anonymous letter, she's accused of an inappropriate romantic relationship with an now former senior vice president of Best Buy before she became CEO. 
Berry has been an important part of the retailer's turnaround story since taking over last June. Shares of Best Buy have grown by nearly 40%. Worth noting, this is not the first time a Best Buy executive has behaved inappropriately. Former CEO Brian Dunn resigned in 2012 for engaging in similar conduct. Courtney Reagan, we don't know how this is going to play out, but based on Brian Dunn's story, this is a company that has no problem cutting ties with CEOs who are found to have acted inappropriately. And I would imagine this makes it a little bit more hypersensitive. It's always going to be a sensitive issue when you have allegations like this come to light. But exactly the history that Best Buy has with this in 2012, as you point out, when Brian Dunn resigned. Now, his, at least, we found out, had a little bit more layers to it of complication. The female that he was accused of having this relationship with was very clearly subordinate. There was some... Because he was the CEO at the time of the alleged relationship, He was, yes. Neither of these two folks, apparently, were CEO. Corey was not CEO at the time. That's right. Corey just became CEO. So it may have been a lateral relationship in terms of their position of authority inside the company. Potentially. I mean, she was CFO first before she came before she became CEO, and he was an SVP, so a, a little we unclear. We don't know when, though, in this timeline, this relationship You're allegedly right. would have happened. There are many details that we do not know, but the board has confirmed that they are indeed looking into these allegations, and there is an outside law firm that I can confirm is helping them to do so, but the law firm won't really say what else they're looking yeah, at right now. The, the big question is what made it inappropriate. So, you know, they grew up well, together. If there's, a, if there's an imbalance of power, that's what exactly, I would, that exactly. is the, that so, would be the definition well, of inappropriate. It would be. It would be, number one. So we don't know. They grew up together in the company. He was actually a senior vice president first before she was. So it's hard to see where that dynamic might have been, you know, changed. The other question is, did they use corporate funds? Were corporate funds used? And secondly, are you required to disclose a relationship with, like this regardless of what the power structure is? So we don't know. They said yeah. inappropriate. But we don't know why. We don't know what, what that means. Still a lot of questions we're trying to uh, get answers to. But in general, and maybe this is a naive, naive uh, point to make, but the fact that certain CEOs and executives still feel like they can get away with, without disclosing an inappropriate romantic relationship in this day and age where social media and technology makes it much easier to track or, or expose someone is just surprising. No, but a lot of people do meet their spouses at the office. We spend a lot of time here, so you don't know. Maybe nothing right. will come of this. We'll find out. All right. Let's talk about Starbucks. The coffee chain is giving up plans or adding to plans to become more resource positive in its effort to prioritize sustainability. The move includes shifting away from reusable packaging and making a push for more plant-based food. In fact, shares of Beyond Meat are jumping ostensibly on this news. Kate Rogers joining us here to talk about Starbucks' goals. Does that mean that the, the, the sausage, egg, and cheese at Starbucks is going away in favor of Beyond Sausage, Egg, and Cheese? They didn't announce any direct partnerships with suppliers like Beyond or Impossible, Brian, but let me walk you through some of their goals. By 2030, Starbucks says it plans to cut its carbon emissions in half in its direct operations and its supply chain to conserve or replenish half of the water taken for coffee production or operations and to reduce half of the waste sent to landfills by its stores and in its manufacturing process. As you mentioned, the company also said it would be offering more plant-based options on its menu in order to be become more resource positive. It did add some dairy alternatives earlier this month. And you mentioned Beyond Meat really getting a nice pop on the news today. You know, we know Tim Hortons does have a sandwich in this category. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts, of course, teamed up with Beyond Meat. So analysts have been watching to see if and when Starbucks would get in on the game, much like they're watching McDonald's. But more broadly, the company really, you know, furthering its commitment to uh, the environment in this big announcement today. 
I'm more interested, Seema, if, if resource positive is the new catchphrase we need to start adopting. Yeah, that or plant-based diets. I think the fact I've that Starbucks... That. I, I'm not familiar with resource positive. As Kate points out, though, the fact that Starbucks is getting into this space, whatever they want to call it, resource positive or not, just confirms that this is no longer just a trend or a fad. This is a movement, and it's really taking hold, and consumers are responding to it. Are you I supposed will, to say you're resource negative? I, I will never be resource positive. I consume so much food every day and everything <laughs> else. But what's interesting is not so much the meat issue, but the packaging... I mean, to cut their landfills by half, I'm really curious how they're going to do that. And to reuse all the water that they use for coffee, how are they going to do that? So I'm really interested in technologically how they're going to get these two. These are big targets. I was just going to say, Kate, as far as my limited knowledge about this, I think making coffee or harvesting the coffee beans is really water intensive. Yeah, definitely. And they do have a big uh, move into ethically sourced coffee. That's been important to the company for quite some time. But I will say uh, to Robert's point about the packaging, they have made pushes in the past to try and get you to use these reusable cups. They give them to you early around the holidays. You get somewhat of a discount. Don't forget, too, they made this big announcement about using uh, plastic straws and getting rid of those by 2020. I know. But, and let's year. also, let's also, t- it's like you got to tell the whole story. It's like electric cars. You got to talk about the batteries. Mobile apps, cell phones use huge amounts of power because of data center usage. And mobile apps probably encourage more people to drive and leave their cars running as they idle while they run in and get their food or sit in a drive. There's got to be a total yeah. holistic view in some of these things. Well, some of that's beyond their control, but you're right. Some of these things are beyond meat. Yes. Robert, <laughs> thank you. All right, next up, the coronavirus that is really concerning China is impacting stocks outside of that country, in particular luxury stocks. Take a look at LVMH, Burberry, and Hermes, among others. Courtney, obviously the fear here is that consumers in China and elsewhere simply won't go to the mall or go to stores because they don't want to be around other people who might be affected. And or tourism will get cut down. And tourism is such a big part in so many of these Asian markets, both both tourists leaving, tourists coming in and buying these goods. And I think this happens oftentimes when you see these outbreaks and there's an immediate pullback and a lot of fear until we get more information. We all were just talking before we started here. We don't exactly know a lot about this virus and how it's incubated and how it's passed on. And right now there's a lot of operations out of fear. And these are really important markets to these players. Yeah. I mean, luxury, the luxury economy, the good thing is that the Chinese are buying more luxury in China now than they used to. The bad thing is that the Chinese are also traveling more broadly than they were during SARS. Remember, SARS was a 40 billion... It was billion, also H5N1 or the avian yeah, flu. Yeah, but, but SARS was the big one, and this is the worry, because that was a $40 billion hit to the economy, $7 billion hit to the U.S. Remember, the stock market fell 16% just during the SARS epidemic. So this could be a market event. And given how quickly it's grown, we don't know the incubation period. We don't know a lot about this, but we're already up to, what, over 200 Yeah, and we cases. still have, by the way, Seema, a year of tariffs, I mean, that have happened and months to go. And by the way, Hong Kong, it's been off the front mm-hmm. pages, but it is far from being settled. China's facing a lot of issues at one time. A laundry list of challenges facing China's leadership and President Xi, not just the trade tensions in Hong Kong, but now this recent outbreak. And the timing could not be worse right ahead of the Chinese Lunar New Year, where, as you guys were pointing out, millions of Chinese travel either home or overseas across Asia. Uh, For these luxury companies, one-third of total luxury spend is from China. Despite the slowdown, these companies like LVMH and Caring, uh, they've been really successful inside China. So does that continue amidst this outbreak? Okay, sit sit tight here because we actually have some news on this right now that appears to be impacting the markets. Stocks are losing some steam right now. The Dow is now down 70 points. It's dropped 50 points in the last couple of minutes. 
There is now a report from the Center for Disease Control that they have the first U.S. case of that coronavirus. Airline stocks also moving lower on this headline. American Airlines, Southwest and Delta. Again, no other real information other than the CDC has confirmed that there now is at least one case in the United States of this coronavirus. We don't know where. We don't know how long this has been known. But it is impacting the equity markets. The Dow dropping about 50 points in the manager in the manage uh, uh, matter rather uh, of a couple. Oh, it's in Seattle. I'm just getting word in my ear. Thank you very much, Christina, that this case was confirmed in Seattle. Obviously, a big travel hub coming from Asia as well. All right, we'll get you more, of course, on that story as it develops. The Dow down at 70. All right, last but not least, in rapid fire, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai weighing in on facial recognition. And he's actually for a temporary ban on it. Speaking at a conference, Pichai said it is important to be clear-eyed about what could go wrong with the technology and urged regulators to take a proportionate approach to governing it. He framed any sort of ban as a, quote, waiting period before we really think about how this is being used. I mean, I think taking a sort of a, a jab at China, which is a huge TikTok and a huge user, Robert, of facial recognition technology. Yeah, I mean... It sounded like Alphabet has the technology, but they're sort of holding back on it until there's some sort of consensus as to what the regulation is going to be. But clearly, states are going to be able to use this to their advantage and even companies unless we figure out some kind of broad policy of how we're going to. The technology has gone much faster than the government's ability to keep up with it or understand what it can be used for. Yeah, and it was interesting in that op-ed by Sundar Pichai, he talked about his upbringing in India and how every technology development has such a profound impact on his family and its ability to have a better life. Fast forward to now, as the CEO of one of arguably the most powerful technology companies, he's now in a position with understanding the benefits of artificial intelligence, but also recognizing there are a lot of risks without the proper regulation. I also found it interesting how he said the regulation should be be uh, customized per every sector. So whether it's medical devices or electric cars, uh, regulators shouldn't just look for a blanket AI regulation. They should just try to customize it per sector. I I do, though, Courtney Reagan. I mean, I guess I'm just old and cynical because, (laughs) you know, no company tracks your movements more than Google. I know. I mean, assuming you use Google products, that is. Obviously, you have no Google products. They don't. But, I mean, Google Maps knows when you stop to get a cup of coffee. Right. They know where you stopped. They know what you're writing in your emails. It was like Suddenly that, now we're worried about facial recognition. Ah. I mean, it was like that very big New York Times in-depth reporting about data and how we've all sort of allowed all of these companies access to our innermost private data points of our lives and just trusted that they'll do the right thing yeah. with it. And I think that is just very a very scary thought. We were so excited about the technology and how it improves our lives that it wasn't an afterthought until later we thought, oh, God. Well, also facial recognition, you think about this, in the age and, of the beginning of deep fakes, once they've scanned all of our faces, of the big, right. they're going to be able, somebody's going to be able to make a perfect replica Absolutely. of Robert Frank saying like Brian, I do not wish to be on Rapid Fire. And it'll anymore. be much better than the real thing. And it will. It's going to be like the movie X Machina, by the way. And it may say, end this. It, it may end it, the same. It way. does feel like we're in a sci-fi movie talking about this facial recognition but we're here. and it's the regulation here. of it. I, I, I know here. we are. Courtney, thank you very much. Seema, thank you very much. Robert, thank you very much. Well, speaking of stopping to get a cup of coffee, shares of Luckin Coffee, they've been on a tear. And a top analyst says Luckin has got more room to run. He'll join us with what he sees as a massive untapped opportunity. Next. All right, welcome back. There is a coffee battle brewing in China, and it looks like Luckin Coffee is a bit of a home field advantage. Right now, shares of the company are up 140% in the past three months while Starbucks has seen just single-digit returns. 
So what's been the company's secret recipe to success and how long can it last? We're joined now by Eric Gonzalez. He's an analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets. Eric, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, interesting day, by the way, uh, for the call on Luckin because of the coronavirus. Obviously, anything related to China, the consumer, is down today. Do you have to reevaluate based on these headlines? Well, look, I think, I think these things tend to happen every few years in China. But one of, the, one of the things we looked at was Yum China. If you go back to 2002, 2003, what you saw was a, a two- to three-week period of time where their same-source sales growth declined by 20 to 30 percent. But post that, that outbreak, in a very short period of time, you saw, that, you saw trends recover almost you know, instantaneously. So while it, was, while it was a very pronounced decline, you did see trends recover uh, quite Okay, so, so, so if this goes, hopefully, doesn't get to the level of SARS or the avian flu, if it progresses with what history suggests it might, we could see a two- to three-week period of weakness, concerns, people staying home, then they get the all-clear, and then it goes back to business well, as usual. Well, that's just one major brand that had, that had that issue back in 2003. You know, certainly, we'll have, to see, we'll have to wait and see and watch to see what happens over, over the next few yeah. months. Um, but it's something we'll be watching. So very other closely. people are the concern. Ironically, part of your bullish thesis on Luckin is this opportunity for unmanned stores. Sure. Yep, absolutely. So there are plans. There are plans to open up 10,000 uh, express coffee machines and then another 100,000 uh, more traditional uh, vending machines. And if you if you think about the this company's valuation in 2021, we we believe they'll earn a dollar 80 in their core business, which is the 10,000 stores that they're going to have open between now and then. And so if you take $1.80, we think you can get another $1.50 or so in earnings just from these unmanned retail locations. You know, we, we did a piece with Eunice Yoon. She went to a Starbucks at a Luckin, and Luckin was far cheaper. Is there, sure. a, is there a definitely a home field advantage here, Eric? Certainly it is, it is much cheaper because they have significant advantages in digital. They have 40 million users of their app, 12 and a half 12 or so million of those are active users. The average cup, uh, cost of a cup of coffee in China at a Luckin is about 11 this compares with 35 or so it's at a Starbucks. 11 renminbi. 11 RMB. So about right? a buck and a half U.S. dollars, Cor- roughly. Correct. And at Starbucks, it'll cost you 30 to 35. And the reason is... So be- wait, it's like four t- three or four three, times the a, price? It's three times the price. That's the effective price, not the list price. Why? Why? I can understand money. 10% more. 20. Why is it 3x? Well, it comes down to the digital advantage. So this company, as I said, has 40 million users of its mobile application. These users don't need to find, they're not the, it's not the walk-by traffic. So whereas Starbucks might be on the high street where it's paying the expensive real estate, there's 10 people working in the store. Luckin stores are generally in the lobby of an office building where you can walk downstairs, you order it on your app, 100%. Pick it up, go back up Pick to your it desk. up, go back up to your desk. Right. So they're not paying that high rent, and that's really where they get the digital, the, the advantage on price. And you got an overweight and a $56 target. So some upside left for our viewers. Absolutely. On LK, Luckin Coffee. Eric Gonzalez, thank you. Thank you so much. The grounding of the 737 MAX has stretched into its 11 month and could cost the company twice what some analysts are estimating. Just how many billions Boeing might have to borrow next. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Grounding of the 737 MAX now going on its 11th straight month. And it could cost Boeing far more than originally thought as the cost continues to rise. Leslie Joyce is joining us now with some breaking news on Boeing. We'll get to this debt story in a second. Leslie, I know you literally literally ran onto the set because you're still in call. It's all good. (laughs) Chill. We're good. Uh, You literally just broke a piece of news. 
What is it? Yeah, so Boeing now is telling airlines they expect that this plane will not be back until the summer. Um, that means that that's when regulators will sign off on it. And if you'll remember, Boeing recently did an about face, and they said that they're going to have to require uh, pilots to take simulator training. Um, that will take several months. What this really means is that airlines are going to probably be one more summer, one more peak season, peak travel season without these planes. Okay, is this Boeing saying summer or is this the FAA saying summer? Because from what I understand, a CEO might have lost his job in part because he wouldn't stop talking about things that he shouldn't have been talking about, like return to service dates. Right. And, and Boeing, of course, certainly now that after what happened with Mullenberg losing his job after those estimates, and now we're in 2019, of course, the end of 20, uh, sorry, the beginning of 2020, the end of 2019 didn't happen. Um, Boeing is actually being pretty careful about this. And I don't think that they want to give a firm date, but they want to let their customers know uh, that this is potentially going to be another summer that they won't have the plane ready for, kind of build in for any sort of uh, curveballs that, that and have Leslie, come up. And Leslie, is, is Boeing's, I know you came on to talk about the debt story, yeah. but this is breaking. So, yeah. You broke it, by the way. Is, is this a situation where Boeing is saying it won't be until the summer, or they're saying it's going to be in the summer? They're saying there's a difference. They're saying they don't expect regulators to sign off on it until the summer. And what signing Best off... Best case. I mean, everything, it, they have to give some sort of estimate. Um, they're not giving a firm date, and they saw how that bit them mm-hmm. before, and I don't think that they're going to go ahead and do that. The airlines have, I think a dozen or more times, have pushed back that return to service. You have American, United, Southwest, the big max customers in the United States, already pushing back uh, when these planes are going to be returning to their schedules in June. Um, this is early June, so this can go on for the rest of the summer. And another thing to remember is that it gets worse as time goes on. There were only about uh, three to 400 planes at the time of the grounding in March, which I can't believe it was a year ago. Yep. Um, but they were supposed to receive more planes in, in these And by the uh, way, they're, they're, they're still sitting there, and Air Lease has come out. They're a big sort of aircraft leasing. They said, you've got to change the name. Nobody cares, but we've done these little polls on Twitter and stuff. And I've had about 50% of the audience, just my Twitter followers, say they would think twice about getting on a 737 MAX. That's a challenge that the airlines I are mean, going to have I mean, no to one's talking about, about what happens to the airlines when and if it returns to service. What happens if half the people booked on a flight say, I'm not getting on that plane? Now, United can send them away, or Southwest can send them away, and risk ticking off customers. What happens if they want to be rebooked? This is a bigger problem from the airlines yeah. that people are talking They're about. They're thinking about that already. And Southwest has said that we're not going to force anybody to go on any aircraft. Americans going to work with customers. United has said similarly. Even CEO Oscar Munoz said, like, we're not going to force anyone and to so go on a plane. And so if you have a plane to. that's sold out but half the people won't get on it, that's an unusable plane. You know what I mean? Like Southwest it, it, it is going to return it to Boeing and say, people won't get on it. Give me my money back. Well, it's not clear yet what travelers are going to be doing. Um, We've never had a grounding like this in the era of social media. We've never had a hashtag unground or anything like that. But now the apps, it remains to be seen. Your apps show Mm -hmm. what kind of plane you're on. Right. So Thursday, 757, A320, whatever it is. And I think they prefer people to do that before they book. And then instead of getting to the airport and telling the gate agent they don't want to go on there. Okay, Leslie, thank you very much. Great stuff. Breaking news on Boeing. All right, coming up, what digital media companies are doing that they have never, ever done. Stick around. Your big earnings of the evening is what else? Netflix, those numbers out after tonight's closing bell. And this will be the first quarter where we're going to see the impact of all the new streaming rivals that are out there. For more, we're joined by Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios, and our own Julia Borston. Julia, is Baby Yoda going to just crush Netflix when we see their numbers tonight? 
Well, look, there are two stories for Netflix. Of course, there's the domestic story where growth has been slowing. Uh, we even saw U.S. user numbers decline, subscribers decline um, in the earnings reported this summer. So we expect the U.S. numbers to be much smaller um, than the international numbers. Internationally, Netflix is expected to continue to grow at about 7 million um, new subscribers. And I think that there's going to be much less of an impact globally because of the fact that Disney Plus is only really launched here in the U.S. and in a couple other markets. It doesn't launch in Western Europe um, until in, uh, the end of March. So I think that there are going to be two different stories for Netflix. International growth as international subscribers are less valuable. Many of them pay less. And then here in the U.S., slowing growth. But it'll be interesting to see how the numbers play out because for the first time, Netflix is going to be breaking out the success of different regions. And in, instead of just reporting the U.S. numbers separately, they're going to be bundling together the U.S. and Canada. All right, Sarah, I want to talk about something else, because from what I understand, due to your fine reporting, some of these digitally native firms are actually gasp making money. Are we going to see profitability for the first time in the Internet's history? I think so. Look, you have a lot of big media companies that have struggled to hit profitability in the past. I'm talking about media companies like BuzzFeed, Vox Media, and Vice. These are companies that have gone under enormous pressure, big layoffs in order to finally hit profitability. Executives telling Axios that they're expecting to hit it in 2020. And to your point, we're starting to see some companies finally hit it last year in 2019. Those companies include some subscription media companies like The Information, as well as other more advertising-based companies like Business Insider and Axios and Politico. Well, it seems like, it seems like good news, Julia Borston. So I wonder, does that influence your beat? Does that make, you know, could Netflix suddenly embrace the ad model? You're halfway through Stranger Things and an ad for deodorant just pops up out of the blue. <laughs> Well, look, there's been a lot of speculation, a, a lot of analysts saying that Netflix needs to embrace an ad model in order to offer a lower price subscription tier. Netflix has reiterated many times that they're not interested in getting into advertising. But I think what's interesting, Brian, is what Sarah was just saying about some of these digital media publishers. Many of them are not just doing traditional advertising. They also have subscription models. They also hold events or they have podcasts, which is a whole new re revenue stream in terms of advertising for podcasts. So I guess the question is not would Netflix embrace an advertising model, but would these digital media companies start to embrace a subscription model as well? Yeah. Is Sarah, you know, the athletic and the information, are they... Are they working? Are people paying their 20, 30, 50 bucks, you know, a year or a month for these sort of sites to dig in a little deeper in their topic of choice? Is that working? It's working. I mean, if you think about The Athletic, they say that they're very close to hitting one million subscribers worldwide. That's a huge number for a primarily text-based journalism product that's around a niche. It's around sports. And as far as the information goes, that's been a highly successful business product, especially in Silicon Valley and especially on Wall Street. So I think another point, adding off of what Julia said, is... Are you going to see these successful journalism outlets now start to produce such riveting content that maybe they could sell or license that content to Netflix? It really yeah. all comes full circle here. And the one example that comes yeah, we to got, mind. Sarah, I'm, I apologize cutting you off. We've got five seconds left in the show. We'll get you back on, Julia. Thank you very much. That does it for us on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 